Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with your host, Auntie Vice. Welcome back to a new year, and it's good to have everybody here. Today, I have Wesley Toma on. He is an intimacy and relationship coach focusing on the LGBTQ and kink community. And we actually have some overlap from some stuff we worked on, so there's a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So we're recording this a little bit before we're going into the holiday season. Mm-hmm. How has the year been for you? Uh, it's been good. It's been crazy. A lot of ups and downs, uh, you know, just with the, how the world, world has been with, you know, this whole pandemic and everything. I made it three years and then finally got it like two months ago. And that was not fun. So that's that was a fun way to end my year. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. Well, I'm glad you made it through it. I did. Thank you. You are a relation and intimacy coach. So for uh, people use those terms differently. And sometimes people think that means you're like a sex coach or Mm -hmm. that uh, you're an LCSW. What what specifically do you do? So um, I am specifically I'm a life coach. I don't I'm not a therapist. Um, We focus I focus on relationship, like I said, relationships and intimacy. Uh, for me, what that means is not necessarily because so when people think of intimacy, they initially think of sex. For me, intimacy does not equate sex. Um, intimacy does not equate a rela- a romantic relationship that you can have a you can have an intimate style relationship with your best friend or coworkers or your manager. So for me, relationship and intimacy is more about finding people, whether it's a couple or a group or whatever, or even an individual wanting to work on their interpersonal skills helping them to get to find it better, be better at forming those relationships, keeping those relationships and working through them. So we've had a bunch of people on the show in the last year and a half talking about different forms of intimacy and connection. And we just, uh, we finished out the season last year with Kathy Reisenwitz talking about loneliness and this epidemic of loneliness that we're going through. Do you see that in your own practice that people, even though they're surrounded by others, don't feel connected? Yeah, I feel I feel it's a that's a common thread, and I think kind of going back to what we were just mentioning, I think that has a lot to do with the state of the world as it is. You know, having spent you know the last three plus years or whatever in isolation for the most part, if you didn't have a, a partner or you didn't have anyone to communicate with, it it was terrible. You know, I lucked out; I had my husband with me, but it, even then, it was still there were times where it was really, really tough. So a lot of, I find a lot of people are still now that even though it's 
don't want to say the pandemic's over because it's not over, but now that it's kind of gotten better, people are now actually going out into the world and going out in public. Uh, they're still kind of stuck in that mindset of we are isolating and we need to be separated. And it almost kind of, it almost kind of kind of comes across um, subconsciously, even when wearing the mask, you know, we need to wear a mask because we want to be safe. But I think that that um, isolation translates when we put the mask on that we're still isolating because, you know, when you're talking to someone, the biggest the biggest expression is your is your face is your smile or your mouth. And you're cutting off half of your face with those things, you know, yes, they're necessary, but I can but that's kind of what I think is causing a lot of the. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and you bring up an important point that intimacy isn't always sexual, right? It can, right. there's and it doesn't even have to be romantic. It it's a close connection you have with someone. So, especially with men, we don't really teach boys growing up how to form close bonds. No. So, when you're doing this type of counseling, where do you start especially with men talking about how to form these intimate bonds without you know, coming against all the blocks that we've we've created in society for men to feel connected. Uh, I think it, it it does depend on the men. Uh, however, I know for for the most part, a lot of a lot of what I have to start with at the base is teaching men that it's it's okay to have emotions, to be emotional. I think our society, I mean, I don't think, I know our society has, has designed a structure where men are not supposed to be the emotional ones, where the, you know, where the, the breadwinners, where the workers, and, you know, we don't have emotions, we're physical, women are emotional, and that, you know, all that BS. So I think it starts, for me, a lot of it starts with teaching a lot of, a lot of men that it's okay to share your emotions. So it's okay to feel emotions. You know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. It's not, it's not the end. It's not, you know, emasculating. It's, you know, it's, it's empowering if anything. And you work a lot with, with the LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. community. Uh, do you find that even working with, with gay men, especially gay cis men, you're still running into those same types of blocks around what a man should be? Yeah, I think so. And I, I, a lot of it is, you know, the, the, the gay community, the LGBT, LGBTQ community is still very, especially in the, in the male, male side of it, the cis male side of it, it's still very masculine, masculating, you know, they want, you know, you have a, uh, so I think that that plus the fact that, you know, I, I, most, most, if not all men are raised by a, not, not all, I should say, but a good a good chunk of men are raised by cis male straight men, so which which have that initial thought of you know masculinity is a certain way. So I think that kind of feeds through, and then you know, like you look at a lot of the you look at a lot of the the, the LGBT specifically the gay men sites in the societies in the groups, and they're very much about being you know masculine being strong men and you know so yeah i think a lot of it still translates over to that uh i find it's a little bit it can be a little bit easier sometimes to transition them because i think i don't know i, I think by you know in a way when when we come out we kind of go against the grain so it's i feel like you know and this is what i experienced myself it's a lot easier it was a lot easier for me I feel to show those to learn to show those emotions than it was to say like my brother who's very straight you know who can't show emotions 
So for you, where did the journey to get in touch with that before even becoming a relationship coach? How did that start for you? That actually started when I met my husband. Surprisingly, he, well, not surprisingly, I, I keep saying that. He is an amazing human being. Uh, he is. He has taught me a, a great deal. We've been together 12 years. We've been married 10. He taught me how to talk because, again, I was raised by, you know, cis, white, straight man to get more into a very Republican. So it was, it was a very specific upbringing that I had to fight my way tooth and nail out of. Uh, and, and what part of that was learning not to express emotions, was not learning to talk about how you your feelings and you know, growing up, as an example, growing up, we didn't believe in therapy because therapy goes for the week. You know, that's that's what I was taught. So when I met him, he came came from a, very, a much different family, much more open, much more understanding family, and he learned he knows how to communicate. So he basically kind of taught me from day one how to talk, how to communicate, how to be that person I needed to be, and then from there, it just kind of that's and that's honestly where. I, I kind of started getting into the relationship coaching because now that I knew what I was, now I understood what relationships are. I had a better understanding and it kind of helped me feed into like, I want to help other people that have these same issues resolve them. You also work with the kink community mm -hmm. and in the kink community, we often think of therapy and, and sensitivity on the top, on the side of the submissive, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones who deal with all of this because submissive, at least in the U.S. context, is seen as also very feminine. So when you're working with specifically male dominance, like you know, this is like an uber-masculinity funneled into uber-masculinity, how do you even begin to break through and have that conversation that it can be okay to be a dominant and a man and still be sensitive? Uh, it's it's tough. It's it's a lot of uh, a lot of thought-provoking questions. It's a lot of kind of deep diving into your personality. Uh, you know, I think the first, the first thing is in, you know, unfortunately it's still, even in the King community, it's still kind of widely believed that, you know, the Dom doesn't need like aftercare. The Dom doesn't need support, which is frankly BS. You know, I think everybody needs some form of aftercare, regardless of if you're, if you're the Dom of the sub. And I think a lot of Doms, you know, they're still on the side, like, oh, I don't need that. My, my aftercare is taking care of my sub and well, maybe you need a hug too. You know, I know a lot of, I know a lot of doms who like, you know, they'll spend an hour, you know, beating you and they just want to make, be made sure that they're not a bad person when it's over, you know? Cause I mean, it's, it, it can take a toll on them too. And I think a lot of them don't realize that and they kind of internalize that. And then they walk away, not getting the care that they need. And it almost forms like some sort of like, like a toxic, and, and not how I say toxic environment per se, but a, a toxic emotion, a toxic personality, you know, and you have a lot of these, you know, as, as you know, in the King community, you have a lot of very toxic male, toxic Dom personalities. And I think it's because of these people who don't understand aftercare, who don't understand what they need and what their emotions are, you know, once they're done. And I think that's a, a critical conversation that people are starting to have that dominance actually are, you know, as emotional and as impacted by a scene as the submissive, regardless of whatever you're doing. Do you see, you know, you, you've worked in the cake community for a while. Do you see more openness and more of that coming into the conversation? Or is it still because we've been so flooded with 
with new people in the last 10 years? Is it something that we, we have yet to broach as a community? I find that it's, it's getting better. I feel like a lot of the, the negativity is, is, you know, quote unquote old hat. And the, the new hat coming in is kind of a little bit more understanding, a little bit more, you know, millennials are a little bit more in touch with their emotions than like the boomers or the Gen Xers than we were, you know? So I, I feel that it's getting better. I feel that usually when they come to me, by the time they come to me, they're already in a place where they're ready to make those changes. It's the people that I, the people that I don't talk to that, that need the most help are the people who don't want to get that help kind of with my old mindset therapies for the week. Those people, those are people that actually need to be talked to and need the, need the help more than the people who come to me. Cause I feel like once they start coming to me, they're already willing to do the work for the most part. Right. Yeah. And by the time you're seeking out that care, you've obviously recognized that you need some type of help. Even yeah. if you go running away from your first two or three therapists. Exactly. So, so one of the things that has come up repeatedly, especially when I teach, is how do I find a therapist or a coach who is kink aware and why is that important? In terms of finding one, you can always just go to my website and you'll find one. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I, unfortunately, I think there's, there's not a lot of people out there who actually promote themselves as kink coaches. There is a lot of, I know many, many sex educators who are also coaches. So they are kink coaches. They don't promote themselves that way. They just, but, uh, so there's not a lot of us out there. And I think that's, that's partially because of the stigma behind, you know, the kink community and in, in the vanilla world. So I think it's, it is hard to find them. I think it's good to find someone because like that, because it's like, because I think you need, I feel you need someone that's going to understand you. You know, it's one like, because, because people who come to me are also kinksters, me being a kinkster, I understand the, the community. If you went to some, just a regular vanilla, you know, therapist or, 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 or coach that doesn't know anything about kink, could they help you? Yes. But could they be effective as as effective? Probably not, because they don't understand the language. They don't understand the need. You know, they're not. You, when you're talking about having a, a you know, a, a like a, for example, a needle scene, they don't know how to handle that because they don't know anything about that. You know, whereas someone who who knows that world, you know, whether or not I played in that kink space, I still know enough about this about the the community to be able to work with them through that. How did you come to find the kink world? Oh, purely accidental, I think. Um, I, I, it was with my husband, and we, you know, we were we were very monogamous for a very very long time, and you know, very vanilla. And one of the things that he also taught me was trust and understanding and lack of judgment, which is also very important in kink. So because of that, I, I took the opportunity to. You know, we explored a little bit. We were testing our boundaries, testing out what we like, what we didn't like, and come to find out that you know, yeah, we are kingsters. We like to do certain things that are that are not quote unquote the norm, and we we enjoy it. It makes us happy. So we then kind of just explored it together, and then from there we kind of found the society. We found the community. We found a society of people that are just like us. You know, just as freaky as we are. And they have conventions and they have munches and they have great play ways to get in, in touch with people. So, and then we just kind of dived head first. Did you find 
there are different ways to connect intimately with people in the kink community than those in the more vanilla world. I do. I feel like the the way we the way that the kink community connects. I actually feel that the vanilla world can learn a lesson from the kink world in this sense, because, you know, anytime you have a scene, you know, before a scene, there's negotiation, there's consent, there's a conversation that almost never happens in the vanilla world. When you have an intimate scene, whether it's, you know, not kinky, just when you're getting together, it's still a scene. You're not negotiating. You're not consenting really, really consenting. It's all like kind of blanket consent and there's not much communication. I think, we can learn. I think the vanilla world can learn a lot from kinksters in that sense, and I think that in terms of the kink community, I, th- I I I feel that because of that, and again because of the the, the new hack coming in, there people are more understanding of boundaries, people are more understanding of limitations, and people have more understanding of like scarily more understanding of what term no means, which is something that a lot of people don't understand. It's crazy to me, the more I've explored, especially in the legal and medical context, how few people in positions of power understand consent and what no actually means. Yeah, it's crazy. It is, it is. The other thing I think that that a lot of people could get out of the kink world is aftercare. We don't talk Mm. about that in vanilla relationships. And then all of a sudden somebody's upset because they didn't get enough cuddles or they told you to go make a sandwich or whatever, you know, the thing is that... It's been so long since I've had vanilla sex. I don't know what people, I honestly don't know what people do after vanilla sex. But um, well, I can tell you because me, me and my husband just we just opened our relationship, so we've been doing some dating on, on the side, and you know we've been dating some guys where it's been very vanilla, and there's a lot of guys that it's all about the you know fuck them and leave, you know like mm-hmm. we had and they no cuddles, no talk, blow your load, walk out the door. And I, I have to say that there's, there's been a couple of times where I'm glad I had my husband because, you know, I'd have a guy over and he'd just walk out. I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to care together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, it doesn't have to be a kink scene to require aftercare. Like, No, not at all. Yeah. We all have our different needs after we're done with sex. Yeah. What, what people don't understand is even, even vanilla sex is technically a scene. You know, mm-hmm. whether you're, you're using rope or whips or, or just, you know, your own penis. It's still a scene. Right. Right. So in opening up a relationship, this is one thing a lot of people will look at and have a lot of trepidation around. And in some communities, it's expected that you'll eventually have an open relationship. I think more so with the gay men's community that I've come across that eventually you're going to be fucking around. How was it for you to move from a monogamous relationship and a long-term monogamous relationship to opening up? It was a journey. Um, I think for, so for us, we, we had kind of talked about it a little bit off and on for the, for the entirety of our relationship. The only th- the one thing that stopped us is we, we, we kept saying that if we're going to open the relationship, we want to talk to a therapist to make sure that we're not going to mess up uh, what we have. We don't want to screw this up. So that kind of put us off and put us off, you know, both of us being very lazy and, you know, ADHD ridden, we never got that therapist. So we just kind of kept putting it off. And recently, a couple months ago, we just started talking about it and we're like, okay, well, let's, let's find that therapist. So we found a therapist and we opened it up and, you know, if it was for us, it was, it was all about making sure. And again, going back to thankfully for the, like the kink community, I, we have had conversation and consent conversation and negotiations 
sometimes daily because you know this this the open relationship changes as as you play it through and you need to keep those those lines of communication open if you don't that's when you start having jealousy that's when you start having you know in, intimacy issues and fears and all that starts stuff start, starts creeping in uh so for for us it, it was all about making sure we as a couple were okay and regardless of what happens we are the we are the priority that's great. That's great. How did you find a therapist to even walk you through that? Because again, so many therapists out there are focused on monogamy only. And so I'm in Boston and in Boston, we actually have this uh, small group uh, on Facebook. I'm blanking on the, I think it's like called monkey goth or something like that. It's a Facebook group for local Boston, like, you know, LGBTQ types. And um one of they have a they have a they have a list of resources and one of the resources is you know a queer and trans friendly therapists and so we went to that resource initially and we we kind of found a, a you know a couple of doctors on there and talked to them and we find, ended up finding one that we connected with who is also part of the community uh deals with you know couples therapy is very comfortable dealing with uh open relationships and polyamorous relationships because that was obviously important we needed that them to be okay with that not just a couples therapist uh and it just we, we lucked out it worked out and so far she's been great that's fantastic that's fantastic you mentioned being ADHD. And again, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a running thing because I think the overlap with kink and ADHD, that's a pretty tight Venn diagram. Uh, <laughs> Not much spillover. <laughs> there, there is. Like you do that and then you do cosplay and all of a sudden it's... Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how does ADHD make a relationship different? Oh my gosh. God, where do I begin? Um, it makes it vastly different. You know, I, you know, I, like I said, I have ADHD. My husband has ADHD. We all, he's also, we think he's undiagnosed autistic. So, you know, there's that. And, and that causes, you know, that could cause a lot of issues besides ADHD. I, I'm also OCD. I have issues with hyperfocus. So, you know, when he's wanting to clean the house, I can't stop like sometimes playing a video game or, or spending four or six, four or six hours watching YouTube because I'm hyperfocused. Uh, that creates a lot, but on on top of that, it also helps us on the the plus side of it, especially because of the in in the with the kink and the relationship, it helps us to, I don't want to say over obsess is the right word for it, but it, it helps us to be more vocal. It helps us to be more communicative, and uh, also it helps us. I, th- I feel that it helps us to be more understanding in the moment. Like you know, we we understand each other very well. You know, we don't, we, we can, we can communicate without talking. And, and I feel because of the way we are and because of our, like my hyper-focus, our ADHD, where we know what each other is going through. So, you know, if it's a no spoons day, it's a no spoons day, <laughs> you know, and we get that. The other thing that, that can come with that is um, common stuff with, with ADD and ADHD is like forgetting to eat having a hard time doing some of those executive functioning stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some of the coping tools you have to like make sure with two people having ADHD, how do you get through the mail? Lots and lots of Google alerts. <laughs> yeah. Anytime we need to do anything, we, and this is actually something we, we recently were talking to our therapist about. And uh, whenever we need to do anything, we need to d- define, you know, 
if someone needs something done, we define a time frame of when we're going to get it done. And then we set a reminder on the Google or the Alexa to remind us that it's time to start doing this or it's time to get this thing done. A lot of that, a lot of alarms, like I, you know, just taking medications, you know, I have like three or four alarms that go off throughout the day to take whatever medication I need to take. So you've obviously been in relationships before your husband. Mm-hmm. Is it is it harder or uh, easier to be with somebody who doesn't have any type of neurodivergence to be with a neurotypical person? I, for me, I feel it's easier to be with only because you it's that shared experience type of thing. I've so one. I used to be a smoker. Uh, as, as, as an example, I used to be a smoker. I smoked for 15 years. I, I when I met my husband, I was still smoking. I quit because he's allergic to cigarettes, cigarette smoke. So I, I quit and I haven't had a cigarette since. Uh, he has never been a smoker. He's never had an addiction of any kind per se. So he doesn't understand what it's like to have an addiction. He doesn't understand that struggle. And I feel if I was somebody with, you know, me having ADHD was someone that was with a a neurotypical person, they wouldn't understand that struggle. You know, yes, they could be an ally. Yes, they could read about it. They can learn about it, but they don't understand the concept. Whereas, you know, I understand my, I know, you know, if I having a moment, my husband gets it and he's willing to, as much as it frustrates him, he will, he's willing to work with me. And the same thing, if he's having a moment, I get it. And as frustrating as it can be, I'm willing to work with him because I understand because I, and I, and not only do I understand, but I also know that it's going to turn around eventually because it's going it's to be my turn as well. So for people who only one partner is ADHD, what are the, the what advice do you give to, to neurotypicals? Because there's a lot of, of mixed couples like that. Yeah. So for those of us who don't understand ADHD, what, what are kind of the, these relationship survival techniques? Because it does impact longevity of relationships. It does. I think first and foremost, the, oh, the first thing I can advice I can give is see a therapist, whether it's a couple therapist or a single therapist, see somebody to help you understand. Because even, you know, even though, even with us, where we both have, are both neurodiverse, frustration happens, you know? So for a neurotypical, it's, it's more likely that it's going to happen probably even more because they don't understand. Like when you're having, you know, like I said, when you have no spoons day, sometimes they won't understand. Well, why can't you just cheer up? So I think the first and foremost, see a therapist Secondly, just be understanding and let let the person let the person go through what they need to go through. Be there to support them. Don't push them. Don't don't nudge them. Just be there. Just you know, if they may only they may only just need you to lay next to them and cuddle. You know, that's all they need. They don't need you to give advice. They don't need you to talk to them. They just need you to just support them. However, they need you to support them. When they're out of those moments, is that then is the time to talk about it and say, "Can you help me understand? Can you help me explain?" Don't do that while they're in a, while they're having a moment, because you know when you're in you know ADHD moment or you're in an anxiety moment, for example, you, you can't think straight sometimes. Does having ADHD change how you negotiate and go into a kink scene? Yes, I believe it does. Uh, it causes me to focus a lot more on on the negotiation it's also kind of kind of where i take a lot of my my drive for what i do for work too is like i try to i try to promote negotiation in not only just the king but he's also in the vanilla world because it's very important 
And I feel that it's something that everyone everyone can do. So going into a scene, I'm very much about the negotiation. No, we need to talk about it. We need to figure this out. We need and we need to stick to it. You know, because that's a, another thing that a lot of people don't necessarily again, mostly vanilla world, but kinksters as well, don't understand that even though the negotiation is solid, whatever you negotiate is 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 it. Nothing you if you didn't talk about it, you don't do it. You know, and so so I and it, I think for me it's kind of taught me a lot of that. It's helped me teach a lot of that to people, and uh, kind of just show like I don't want to say like a, a like a, 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 a negotiation one hundred and one, but it kind of helped me find some of the red flags, kind of see the the pros and cons and the, the do's and don'ts. If there was a way to verbally underscore all of that. That's what I would be doing because it it is true. If you haven't negotiated it, it's not okay to bring it up mid scene, right? You gotta you gotta Absolutely. stick to the plan and then make a mental note to come back to that later. Yeah, exactly. And another big thing that a lot of people don't real don't think about is never, you know, you can if if you do negotiation in a scene, which I usually recommend not, never negotiate up, always negotiate down. Totally agree with that. So, you're in the gay community. How have you mm-hmm. survived this last year politically? Uh, this last year has been a lot less stressful than the last presidency, but not by much. <laughs> it's it's tough. It is what it is. You know, I understand that these people are terrible people. I understand that they don't have my best interest at hand or at heart. You know, and then you see stuff like, Unfortunately, when you know when we were recording this, just a couple of days ago, we had that the nightclub shooting. You know, you see stuff like that in in, in the in the media, and then you see a lot of these politicians. You know, again, mostly you know the the Republicans, but saying, "Oh no, it's not. It wasn't this. It was that. It was a hoax. It was blah blah blah." And nobody's really has our best interest at hands. You know, yes, they'll say, "Oh, we want to promote." equality we want to promote you know diversity we want to promote a pro-gay you know legalized gay marriage and all this stuff but then you look at you know stuff like florida with that don't say gay uh bill and then all the bathroom bills that are out there that that attack our trans brothers and sisters you know they you, you realize they don't really give a shit about us and you know ultimately i i've kind of got to the point where it's like if I'm not willing to do, if I'm not willing to run as a politician, then I'm just going to have to accept the fact that they suck and work within the boundaries to make it better as much as I can from the position I'm willing to be in. Does connecting with community help cope with that at all? It does. It absolutely 100% does. Having people to relate to and relate with makes it that much easier. You know, like I said, I, I come from my, my family. I come from a very Republican family, so I really can't talk to any of them about any of this stuff. But my friends are very much on the same page as me, and I could spend hours. We can spend out. We we could spend hours kibitzing over the fact that you know this new bill, this new law that was just passed. Oh, it's supposed to be good for us, but was it really good for us, or was it not? You know, it definitely helps. One of the things that a number of guests and, and I have experienced myself is that. As we come to the the lighter stages of COVID, I guess you could call it, <laughs> and a little bit out of, of isolation, there mm-hmm. is a lot of fear and trepidation about going back out into groups. And there are a lot of people who feel like those skills that it takes to really connect to community have, have dwindled. 
during the last three years. Mm-hmm. How do we start rebuilding that as a community to support one another? I think the best way to do it is, is I, I mean, the best way to build it is practice and just relate with people, talk to people that you're comfortable with, you know, put yourself in situations that are, that's not too much for you. I know for me, um, at the height of COVID, I actually started to get some depression from not being able to communicate with people. Uh, you know, I have my husband, but, you know, one person isn't a lot. So it, when I, I remember the first time I went out with friends, it was the most uncomfortable situation I, I, felt, I felt in a very long time. We, ta- we somehow talked a lot, which is great. And then I came home after like a two-hour lunch and my throat was killing me because I've never talked. I hadn't talked that much in years at that point. And so I think a lot of it is kind of practice and just being with people that you under, you, accept, you you trust and who you understand and that is not going to cause you more anxiety. Because I think the last thing uh, the last thing we need coming out of this, if we ever do, if it ever does end, which who knows if that's ever going to happen, but whatever the uh, whatever the end result is of this, as as it is, whatever the new, new normal is, we need we're going to need need to start communicating again. We're going to need to start talking to people again, and it's just it's, we, it's the best way to do it is to do it with people that you trust and you feel comfortable with at first. So when you get into those situations where you're with people that I don't, you know, you don't know, or you're in a meeting, or you're on the street bumping into people. It's not as anxiety driven because you know you've practiced it a little bit. And now that you're back out on the dating scene, <laughs> how is gay dating in Boston in this latter stage of COVID? Like oh. between that and monkeypox and the world yeah. in general, like what's it look like now? You know, I have to say, it is dating. So I, I'm in my early, early mid forties now dating, dating now is almost, is just as bad as I remembered in my twenties. Uh, guys are just as bad as they were back then too. And how a lot's changed. Unfortunately, uh, it's, it's dealing with, and I'm sure a lot of, if this happens in to a lot of, you know, st- straight women as well, because, you know, men are pigs for the most part, you know, not to be crude, but they want to get their dick sucked and move on. Mm-hmm. So, and if, you know, I, we, we, I'm putting myself out there as like wanting to meet people, get to know people, talk to people, have relationships. You know, I'm not looking for another partner, but I'm looking for friendships that I can, you know, build that trust. And that's another thing I think the kink community has kind of ingrained in me. I want to build the trust between myself and my partner before we get intimate, before we have those moments, because I want to understand them and I want them to understand me. But most most guys are, you know, they they are like, hey, let's hook up. Let's just get together for tonight. You know, mm-hmm. bam, bam, send you home. And I'm like, it's not what I want. So it's I'm finding myself actually just saying no more than yes, which is a good thing, you know, quality over quantity. But still, it's, yeah, they're, they're still piggish. And how is sex over 40? That's another thing we have going on here is, as you, has sex gotten better, worse, changed? Uh, I think so. For me, I, f- I feel that sex has got better because you know up until recently it was just with it was just me and my husband. We know each other explicitly. We understand each other's bodies, so it made sex that much better. Since opening a relationship and having you know relationship other people in the bedroom, I don't feel as fulfilled. But that's because most of the people we have we've been having recently have been like a lot of you know 
come in, do your thing and head out. No, there's not a lot of like deep emotion there. Uh, so for me, when I, when, when, when we are having those moments, it's, you know, usually we do, and we do like to share. So a lot of times, a lot of our partners will, will play with together. I try to make connection with him to give myself that feeling of, that com- of comfort and joy. However, sex after 40 is a lot harder than it used to be in general. I, again, when I was in my twenties, I could, I could do it and then give me five minutes, a cigarette, and I'm ready to do it again. Now I do it and I'm going to need a nap. You know, I'm going to need a pill before I can get it up again. And it's going to at least 24 hours. Yeah, no, it, it does. For everybody, it changes. Like yeah. I, and I, that's one thing nobody told me about it. Like I kind of assumed that eventually your sex life just died, but it doesn't. But sex changes a lot. And man, that emotional connection makes a huge difference. Oh my God. It does. Cause I mean, like I said, I've I've had the I've had the hookups, the one night stands, and I get nothing out of it. Like I, I literally finish. I'm like, I might as well just, you know, jerked off. Cause there was no benefit there. But you know, the few, the the one or two that I've actually had some sort of like a conversation with and a little bit of a connection, it was better. You know, and mm-hmm. that's something that's something I didn't give a shit about when I was in my twenties. And again, I think that's something that the vanilla world can learn from the kink world. Is mm-hmm. even if it's just a basic conversation around negotiating what you want to do, there's still more connection there than just mm-hmm. "Hey, how are you? Let's exchange some fake names." Yeah, it's it's so funny how many guys have actually stopped talking to me because I'm very open um, on my profiles. I tell them, "Excuse me, I'm a kinkster. I'm in an open mm-hmm. relationship." I want to have conversations. I want to get to know you. And when I have conversations with guys, I will tell them because I'm a kinkster, I like to negotiate. I don't like to just jump into sex and, you know, without at least knowing what, what we're, what we're okay with. You know, I, I want to at least cover the, the, the hard stops, you know, at the very least, I want to know what's off the table, you know, and then we can, if you want to assume what's on the table, that's fine. I just want to know what not to do. And I want you to know what not to do. You'd be surprised. I mean, I guess you wouldn't be surprised, but I was surprised how many guys then would just stop talking to you when they realized exactly what I meant by I want to negotiate and I want to talk. The other thing that's come up, I, we've had a number of, of gay guys on the, the show recently, is how little discussion about STIs there are anymore in the gay community. Like as mm-hmm. somebody who who came of age during the first wave of AIDS, mm-hmm. like the lack of conversation around that is shocking to me mm-hmm. being in a slightly older age group are guys in your age group even talking about stis and protection and all of that still or is it just go for it i, I think in my age group they are yeah i i know i am so regardless if they are not i i do there's there's amazing medical advancements these days you know you can get on prep now which is supposed to be 99.9% protecting from HIV, which, you know, when I, I, you know, I'm about, I'm probably the same age as you when we were, when we were younger, it's, that was no such thing as that, you know, yeah. the best way to protect yourself from HIV is to not be with someone with HIV. Uh, so, but I saw for me, it is very much, I, but there are some guys my age, you know, especially, I don't know if it's just a, you know, the, the gay community, the gay man community or what, but you know this, this fascination with going raw or bareback, yeah. and I'm like, I don't, I'm not gonna, 
No, I mean, if I don't, if I think you're dirty, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna suck your dick without putting a condom on you. But I'm definitely not gonna let you let you put something inside me, put your dick inside me, or mine in you without putting at least a condom on. Yeah. And I'm on, and I'm on the prep now because of yeah. because we started dating, and I still refuse. Yeah, I mean, they're important conversations to have, and and mm-hmm. HIV is no longer the only thing that's really bad to get. We have super gonorrhea, yeah. we have super chlamydia, and there's nothing yeah. super about them. They're just really hard to cure. Yes. Uh, yeah, oh, and hepatitis also, or any of the other ones out there. Oh, there, there's such a long list of them anymore. Mm-hmm. So as somebody who does intimacy and relationship coaching, how do you bring this up without making it super awkward with somebody you've just met? Bring up what the STD concerns. ST, have that that conversation before yeah. you hook up. Uh, I I don't I I don't try to be subtle about it. Uh, <laughs> I've, I'm too old to give a shit about subtlety. I'm gonna come right out. You know, if we're gonna hook up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell them flat out. I, you know, you're gonna. What do you What are your stance on condoms? What is mm-hmm. What is your opinion on this? When have you been tested? Are you clean? Are you on prep? Are you this? Are you that? You know, I'm going to ask these questions flat out because I don't have time to beat around the bush and play games. I just, you know, I want to know. And if you're if you're going to answer me, you know, I'm not even going to waste my time learning about you sometimes without learning this stuff first because I don't want to waste my time on that either. Because even if I get to know you and then I find out, well, I, you know, I don't use condoms. Oh, that's what, that was just a waste of time. We're, we're done. So with condoms, the the condom, the common complaint is they don't feel good, they don't smell good. What's your go-to brand? My go-to brand, uh, we have actually we have a mix of lifestyles and trojans, mm-hmm. and we we got the mix because there's a clinic here in Boston that hands out free condoms, and they hand out the lifestyle. So we grab some every so whenever we go in there, we'll grab a couple handfuls. Um, and we bought some Trojans. Um, we don't, our, our preferred brand, even though they're a little bit more pricey, are the one condoms. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right now, right now we don't have any of those. There's a, yeah, one, ones are nice. For folks who are looking for free condoms, I'll just put this plug in, by the way, for free condoms. They're not just at clinics. You can use the app. It's available on uh, Droid and Apple called Condom Finder. If you mm-hmm. download that, you put in your zip code, it tells you all the places you can get uh, free, safer sex supplies and STI testing. Um, yeah, highly, highly recommend using it if you if you can. Little fun fact is it was invented by a dude I, I know out here in the HIV community. So I always like oh, to good. promote it because John's awesome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So, I didn't know about that, but I'm going to definitely download it right now and I'm going to make sure to tell people all about it. Yeah, and you find things like all of a sudden, like the the LGBT library or the archives out in Sacramento is a place to get them. There are restaurants that have them. Like, really, you pick them up all over the place. Yeah, I had no idea. And like, uh, people put on there like when they give away the good stuff because we have a couple of clinics that will also give away the skin and the magnums and stuff. So if you're looking for a wider variety than the the lifestyles, um, mm-hmm. you can also find them that way, which is it's cool. Enough. We're looking forward to 2023. Do you have any resolutions or anything you're going to try and get through this this next year? I think this next year, my my goal this next year is to kind of, is to try to build up my my client base if I can. You know, I want to help more people 
I say that not to say that I want to, you know, I want to build my client place in the terms mm-hmm. of like making more money. It's, it, you know, for me, it's more about helping people. I want to, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll work pro bono if it means you get the help you you need, because I think it's important. So I, I want to build up the, I want to build up more, a bigger client base so I can help more people uh, make a difference. I want to, I want to make that difference in the world. You know, like I said, I'm not a politician. I don't want to be a politician. So I'm going to cha- make change wherever I can make change, however I'm comfortable making change. And so I think my biggest one is to try to enact that change as much and as often as I can for as many as I can. That's excellent. And finally, if our listeners want to find you, if they want to hire you, if they want to check your site out, plug all the things. Sure. You can go to my website, which is wesleytoma.com, W-E-S-L-E-Y-T-O-M-A.com, all one word. On there, you can find all the information about me. Find out You can book a, a, a free discovery session and see if I'm the right fit for you. Also coming up, uh, so by the time this comes out, it'll, it should already be released. Me and uh, my friend Lori, who is also on your show, Lori Sweetman, we are we are going to be doing our own podcast uh, called These Queer Stories, where we're going to talk about we're going to talk about you know the queer community and talk about what it's like and kind of our stories through it and try to help people you know discover you know who they are and help them to work navigate those sometimes scary rapids of coming out and being your true authentic self. It's fantastic. We'll have all of those links on the show notes for our listeners. Thank you for so much for being on the show. It was great to talk to you and great to connect and good luck for you and Laurie with the new podcast. Thank you. This is so much fun. And now a moment of gratitude. I am grateful that I'm healthy even though I just had COVID, but I'm better now. I am grateful for my husband who is the world and has done, made my life leaps and bounds better and has helped me to be a, a, a completely better human being. I'm grateful for, I mean, I'm even grateful for our guinea pig because she's fucking adorable. <laughs> You're here with Auntie Vice in the new segment, Say Hi to the Vibe. This is all about finding the right sex toy and teaching people how to shop for sex toys for their bodies. Because there's a lot of information out there. So today, we're really lucky to have Dell. He is a trans man in his mid-40s. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. So, you've been looking for a new vibe. Tell me about what has and hasn't worked for you in the past. Oh, what has and hasn't worked. So I think the biggest problem I have is just like the size of my anatomy it tends to be a little bit bigger in some areas, smaller in others. So like heavier labia, smaller clitoris, things like that. Although since transitioning, the, the clitoris has grown, obviously bottom growth. So it's a little bit larger than most and that can create issues with any types of section toys and then also reach the distance from vagina to clitoris in toys that are you know have dual and what type and what type of sensations do you like 
Um, I love suction. I love uh, vibes that um, you can change, you know, the intensity as well and speed, as well as the patterns. Um, the more, the better. So the switching up tends to be more helpful and less uh, strenuous on the body, especially after um, after transition when there might be a little bit of um, atrophy happening. And have you noticed sex drive changes in the last year or two? Oh, increased. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, very high uh, in the beginning um, using tea. It's mellowed out to something that's more regular, but definitely higher than what I had before. So what I hear is you're looking for a vibe, possibly dual clip G-spot internal, some type of stimulation uh, needs to be able to have a longer distance between the clit and the vaginal opening and right. something powerful with lots of options. Right. And flexible too would be good just because no two bodies are alike. And just like clothing, I think they're built to one body and just, you know, sized accordingly. Yeah, all size fits most does not actually fit most. Yeah, especially for those of us who are larger anyway. <laughs> so I think what we're going to go with is I'm going to recommend the OG Flow Vibe. And it's from Tracy's dog. It is a little different design. It, it has both internal G-spot stimulation and clitoral stimulation. It's different than a lot of the vibes in that it's built, and you'll see it on the screen, it's built a little differently. It's not as tight of a U between them. And it has a little bit larger opening for the clit. It has lots of patterns, and you can control both the internal and the external stimulation differently. So let's go ahead and get you in to try that and then come back on. All right. Sounds good. We're yeah. back. Did you get a chance to try the vibe? I did. I did. And what did you think? I really liked it. Um, the only issue I had was the battery didn't charge very well at first and had some issues with it but the performance was great and it fit everything right and you it, were able to angle it it was long enough it was flexible um where it bent which was perfect for me and it had just the right size opening for the clitoris plus the um the larger space inside was very helpful <laughs> excellent so just if it had a little bit of battery life you would you would go with this solid absolutely Excellent. Well, we'll see if we can find one with a little bit better battery life next time. And uh, for those of you who want to give it a try, see if this design works. It's Tracy's dog. There are links in the show notes. Thank you, Dell, for being on. And I really appreciate you coming on our first segment. All right. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.